All That's Left is made possible by our Patreon supporters. To help us continue this work, please consider contributing at patreon.com leftvoice, and make sure to visit our website at leftvoice.org. Welcome to All That's Left, a podcast from Left Voice. My name is Odin. This month marked one year since Joe Biden became President of the United States. In the lead-up and during the 2020 election season, many in the mainstream media and Democratic Party hailed Biden as a modern FDR, claiming he would be a transformative president. He made progressive promises about cancelling student debt, creating a public option for health care, instituting federal paid leave, and he promised that he would get the coronavirus pandemic under control. This after he claimed that someone who presided over 200,000 coronavirus deaths, as Donald Trump did, should not be president. But the gap between even these meager promises and the Biden administration's accomplishments is vast. Besides the $1.9 trillion stimulus package passed last March and the infrastructure bill passed last fall, most of Biden's plans have either vanished completely into the ether or, like the Build Back Better bill and his voting rights legislation, have been tanked. And at this point, over 883,000 people in the U.S. have died of COVID, with no end in sight to the pandemic. Biden and the Democrats are now facing the prospect of being wiped out during the midterm elections this fall. Time During this year, we've seen the working class rise up. Tens of thousands of workers, from Kellogg to John Deere to Columbia University, went on strike, demanding better wages and working conditions. Millions of workers have quit their jobs in the so-called Great Resignation. Teachers, like those in the Chicago Teachers Union, have taken a stand to resist unsafe school reopenings. As Biden enters his second year, he's under even more pressure to resolve the health and economic crisis in order to maintain capitalist stability. To discuss this and more, today I'm interviewing Madeline Freeman and Ezra Brain on the first year of the Biden administration. Both Madeline and Ezra are fellow members of Left Voice. Over the past year, they've written extensively on the Biden administration and the state of the U.S. regime. Welcome, Maddie. Welcome, Ezra. So a lot of people, even progressives and even uh, to some extent leftists, were saying that Biden was going to be this transformative FDR-like president. So the first question I want to ask is, how would you characterize Biden's first year in office? And was this projection true about Biden? Yeah. And first off, thank you so much, Odin, for putting this together. And it's really great to kind of help launch Left Voice into the audio space. Um, I sound like a capitalist, but um, (laughs) no, but I think um, obviously discussing Biden's first year is really uh, important for a lot of reasons. But I think that this idea that you just brought up of that, like all of these illusions that people had in him, that he was going to be this amazing restorative figure, this person to bring us out of the long national nightmare of Donald Trump, et cetera. Really, I think, and I hope Nadia agrees with me, has kind of come to nothing, right? Is that we kind of are here at a year and we're looking at a COVID crisis that's only getting worse. We're looking at a economy that's continuing to trend downwards. And we're looking at, once again, a just complete and utter congressional gridlock. And once again, we are seeing just the absolute inability of Joe Biden to get 
A, anything done, and B, certainly anything progressive done. And I would argue that since the first few weeks of the presidency, kind of Biden has been a completely uh, almost arms-tied president. Uh, Matt, I don't know if you agree with that, but that's sort of my kind of off-the-dome feeling about it. Yeah. Uh, hey, <laughs> really happy to be here, too. Um, I... Yeah, you know, I, I do agree with Ezra. I do agree with you. <laughs> um, but I and I think like the only campaign promise really that Biden has been able to sort of keep, you know, after some like the really long election cycle, all of these like promises for reforms, much needed reforms that are transformative only in so far as they would slightly, you know, uh, uh, like better some of those huge structural problems in the United States and in working people's lives, but still not be enough. Like the only campaign promise that he was able to keep is that nothing will fundamentally change. And I think that like, <laughs> I think that that's not even just about, you know, um, like continuating, continuing, whoa, continuing Obama's legacy, but like even nothing fundamentally changing from Trump, you know, and obviously like the Democrats and the Republicans are both capitalist parties, both imperialist parties, but with their differences on how to sort of manage those affairs, for sure, they're not the same. We can't just paint a broad brush. But on the other hand, like, I think in many ways, Biden, his first year has shown that he was able to do some of the things in terms of offering stability to capitalism, even not a lasting stable, even not a lasting stability, one that's still very much in flux, but in a way that Trump couldn't, like he was able to do what Trump couldn't in many ways, especially in relation to the pandemic, which we'll talk about later. Um, but in many ways, I think it also shows that even Trump as destabilizing a figure as he was, was also very much still a neoliberal figure, yeah. not breaking with the last 30 years of U.S. imperialism in decline, right? Um, and very much like a symptom of that decline. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think like even we were saying in Left Voice and in a lot of our coverage of the elections, of the first couple of, of months after the Biden administration, especially when he came out like uh, with that stimulus bill and like the first month, week, whatever, we we're like, oh, maybe this he'll be a reformist president. Maybe he'll be, you know, more of this populist figure than we thought. But as it turns out, like nope. <laughs> that has not been the case. The balance of forces, the relation of forces hasn't been there to be able to pass this sweeping agenda that Biden promised. And so in many ways, he's really just acting. The only thing that has remained constant is acting in the favor of trying to stabilize capitalists' ability to continue making profits, you know, Um and so I think it's still really open-ended where that will go. I think the political situation is super, and his administration is super open to change in this moment. But right now, it's, I think we're very much, <laughs> you know, the same as where we were a year, a year or so ago. Maybe that's too much, too strong of a definition. <laughs> but yeah. No, I think that yeah. makes a lot of sense. No, I was going to say, going off of Maddie, what you said, which was far more eloquent than I could ever be, um, I think there were a couple <laughs> of really interesting things there. And the first is that this idea of, that kind of there is a continuity between Biden and Trump. And it is interesting is because I think if you think back to November 2020 or October 2020, we were talking about Trump as this like 
or I guess we weren't talking about Trump, but many people were talking <laughs> about Trump as this like neo-fascist figure who was threatening the very core of American democracy, which I think in many ways was true, right? It is true that the Donald Trump attacked voting rights. It is true the Republicans continue to attack voting rights, right? Like these are real things. It is true that Trump tried to overturn an election. But setting aside his sort of personality, a lot of his actual policy decisions and a lot of his actual policy um, actions as president are very in line with what Biden has been doing. The shift to focus on China away from the Middle East was continued by by Biden, the pulling out of, of Afghanistan. This sort of like, can we give you just enough money to survive the pandemic and get you back to work is absolutely the Biden strategy. And I hope that we can talk more about uh, Biden and COVID in a second, because I think that's where, at least for me, his betrayals are the most clear. But I remember I was um, at work this weekend and I was talking to one of my coworkers who's like a, you know, middle-aged white woman, very sort of liberal, middle of middle of the road. And she was like, it's ridiculous. At least Donald Trump gave us money. Yeah. And like that was such a like interesting, you know, with somebody who was like fully on the Trump as a Nazi bandwagon, which obviously like yeah. Trump was a far right figure. And I don't think any yeah. of us are going to disagree with that. But it is this interesting idea that like in many material ways, Joe Biden has been a more right wing president specifically on the pandemic than Donald Trump. And that is a continuity from from Donald Trump's presidency. And that is a continuation of the Trump policies. Totally. And so when we talk about is he FDR? No, he's Hoover. <laughs> and I think that we need to, and I think we should talk about him in that sense is that he is absolutely bungling all of his very, very, very mild policy proposals, right? Like, um, yeah. Maddie was talking about the sweeping agenda, and like, absolutely compared to what's being passed, what he proposed was sweeping, but I don't think any of us could really call the infrastructure bill as originally proposed a sweeping reformation of the American political system, right? And yeah. so we can see, and I think that this draws interesting parallels with the Bernie Sanders question. I think we can see that there, that like the, a lot of these problems are structural and because they are structural, there is structures in place to prevent things from happening. And I'm sure we'll talk about the filibuster a lot in a second, but it is absolutely true that the anti-democratic nature of the Senate is, ab is able to stop even the most like mild, 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 mild reforms from passing. Right. And so I think it shows that like there is no way out within the context of the state. Yeah, I mean, I think what you guys have gotten to um, is that, you know, at at best, Biden has passed like a few really mild reforms and a few mm -hmm. sort of like absolute bare minimum, like stimulus payments in, uh, I think back in March was when they passed the $1.3 trillion stimulus package. Um, and really this idea that like even, you know, the mildest policy proposals have not gotten through and it's really incredible and really like a testament to the undemocratic nature of uh, this country that, you know, even these things that huge majorities of people support, things like, you know, um, getting prescription drug prices under control, even something like legalizing weed, which uh, majorities of like both parties support, um, haven't even gotten through. And so I kind of wanted to come back to this idea that, Ezra, you mentioned about how the Biden presidency has been this like hands-tied presidency. And so I wanted to ask you both, why is it that Biden has accomplished so little despite the fact that uh, the Democrats have majorities both in the House of Representatives and the Senate, and they hold the presidency? 
Yeah, absolutely. I will start and then Maddie can <laughs> give it some actual theoretical weight, right? But there is this this idea and this definition that we at Left Voice have been putting forward for a while is that we are in the midst of seeing increasing elements of an organic crisis brewing, right? Which is this, in the, the TLDR of organic crisis, it's a theory from Gramsci that argues that, that there is a crisis between the represented and the representatives, right? Where increasingly the people who are elected to, to represent people are no longer representing the actual political interests of those people, right? And we see over a large scale a fraying of the parties, which we haven't fully seen in the US, blah, 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 blah. This is not a Gramsci podcast. But this idea, another element of the organic crisis is an increased polarization, right? Is that there's more and more sort of breadth between people. And I think we're seeing that in an overall trend in Congress. And so I think that what we have seen since the Obama administration is just a complete breakdown of all bipartisan ability, right? And that basically everything is passing strictly upon party lines, which then means that, it, that the only way to pass something through Congress is to have a majority of that party. And so then give then add to that the fact that there is this kind of unresolved crisis in the Democratic Party between the left and the center and the right, with Biden, uh, I would argue, operating as the leader of the center, trying to keep both the Joe Manchin wing and the Bernie Sanders wing in line. We can see that the if the only way to get things passed is literally every Democrat being on board, that we're seeing that the, because of the Senate rules, this has empowered the most reactionary members of the Democratic Party, which is already, as Maddie pointed out, a capitalist imperialist party. So now we have Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema, who are the most right-wing members of a right-wing party, who are deciding entirely because of the filibuster rules and because of the bizarre nature that a 100 people can represent millions and millions and millions of people in government we can see that this is the reason why nothing is getting done. And, you know, and we can say all the criticisms we want to say about Biden's agenda. And certainly it is a very, very incomplete and problematic agenda. But I think we have to look at the way that the structure of the U.S. government, specifically the structure of the Senate, is completely undemocratic. And Odin, as you pointed out, is actively suppressing the what the majority of people want. Meanwhile, we have this group of nine unelected people who serve for life who are overturning abortion rights, which is hugely supportive, right? So what we're seeing is popular things can't get passed and unpopular things are getting done because we live in a country with very, very little democracy. Yeah. Um, no, I think that Ezra gave like a pretty comprehensive answer. I don't really have much to add, except that I think like, yeah, this is in a lot of ways, like I think, you know, from the right, they'll say that, you know, it shows Biden's weakness as a president that he's not able to uh, rally across the aisle, not able to, you know, uh, get cooperation that, you know, it's like, it's all the Democrats. And then the Democrats will say, well, our hands are tied because the Republicans won't do anything. And we have, you know, and, and blame it all and maybe even go a step further to blame it on cinema and um, mansion. But the thing is, like, this is how American democracy is supposed to work. <laughs> and I think that that's the whole point, right? Is that, like, People will look at the situation and say, well, what's more democratic than a 50-50 or like a, a, you know, majority wins vote? What's more democratic than that? But that's not what's really at play here in a society where we are very much divided into two classes, right? We are very much divided into, you know, the capitalists and their allies and then the rest of the people who <laughs> really just vote for representatives who aren't actually doing anything in their interests. Um 
And in that sense, like go to that like huge <laughs> distinction just to say that really what's always sort of, you know, in this equation, like what always has more weight is resolving these issues in favor of capital, especially mm -hmm. in a situation like we have today, where in this equation of US politics, like the issue of class struggle, the issue of, you know, pressure from below uh, for these proposal that Odin is, proposals that Odin is completely correct in saying, like, have a lot of popular support, like, isn't playing as much of a role for a wide variety of reasons, which I think we should, um, we should talk about further, like, later, maybe even, but, like, Biden, in that sense, has been not successful, that's too much, <laughs> it's not success, but what Biden has been able to do is to, I think, uh, dissolve a little bit or not it's not even the right word but sort of lessen the pressure from below by sort of you know um what is the word dissipating that social force that was always present under trump because there was this sector that was activated to mobilize when trump would do really fucked up shit <laughs> and especially in 2020 during the black lives matter movement there was more movement uh from below for these issues and i'm not saying you know that like um that is always, I mean, but that's what I am saying. Like that is all. That is what is decisive. Is if mm -hmm. there is the threat of a mass uprising <laughs> for these yeah. policies, and that's not so much in play. And it's not to say that that's like uncomplicated or, but it is a counterbalance to this whole equation of politics at the national level and how it's playing out right now with Cinema and Mansion having so much power. Because, and this is what I really wanted to say, is that like there's no in this moment. There's no. A sort of pressure from the left of the Democratic Party, right? Like, where are AOC, the squad, Bernie? Like, you know, Bernie now is sort of returning to his old dialogue of the Democratic Party isn't working for working people. The Democratic Party needs to change, basically rebrand <laughs> in a way that it won't. Uh, but it sounds really good and I think is like really reflects the very earnest desires of most people but the at the same time like the this progressive wing of the democratic party's only solution is to like talk nicer <laughs> with cinema yeah. and mansion or argue harder there's no real resistance from that uh sector so um yeah yeah i think you're totally right about the the undemocratic nature and like the the fact that like this is really not a system that's um, set up to yeah to actually be democratic. I think also something I want to bring up is the fact that like you know even under for example the Obama administration the Democrats did have these huge majorities and you know it's not the case that you know Obama was much further right. Obama mm -hmm. also had uh, these big sweeping promises and big you know proposals for change and things like that. And even when they had these huge majorities that the Democrats, you know, still don't have today, the Obama administration and the Democrats still didn't want to implement these um, progressive promises and these progressive laws. And mm -hmm. so something I would also add to this discussion is that, you know, yes, the Senate and the U.S. government is undemocratic and they're all of these sort of like uh, you know, uh, emergency breaks on progressive legislation that um, can be uh, brought in from the government. But I think there's also the sense that, like, the Democrats don't actually want to do a lot of these things. Yeah. So the Democrats, like, you know, under Obama, under all of these Democratic uh, politicians on, like, uh, local level as well, like city and statewide, 
they promise a lot of things, uh, partly, to be honest, because they uh, know that once they're in power, they don't actually have to implement them. And so, you know, although there is, on the one hand, like, of course, they can complain about uh, mansion and cinema. Uh, something else they can complain about is the Senate parliamentarian, who on several occasions has said that, like, actually, you're not allowed to implement, for example, um, these immigration reforms or a $15 minimum wage. There is also the sense that, like, actually, Democrats don't super believe in these progressive things that they ostensibly want to implement. Um, because we see time and time again that actually the Democrats don't fight all that hard for a lot of this legislation. Like, the Democrats really aren't fighting, like, tooth and nail for the Build Back Better legislation, for voting rights legislation, and things like that. What they actually care about is, you know, their raison d'etre, their uh, actual program, which is to uphold capitalism and uphold imperialism. Absolutely, yeah. And I think just to kind of go off of this discussion about like that this is what the system is. And I think it's also important um, as Maddie was saying, is that like now there's like this, this one narrative that is like, Oh, well, it's just mansion and cinema or Odin, as you pointed out, Oh, it's just the parliamentarian. There's also this like idea that kind of Biden spoke to a little bit last week of, well, things aren't working as they're supposed to. We need to like have some, and I think it's really important to like put this in a historical context, which is the Senate exists to give slave owners more power. That's why the Senate exists. The Senate exists because of a compromise that came out of the Constitutional Convention because the southern slave states wanted to have more representation in government. And so they created one house that was proportional, which would give the northern states more uh, power, and one state that was not proportional that would give the southern states more power. And then to make matters even worse, even though they couldn't vote, they encountered all the enslaved peoples as part of the populations, just like they do with imprisoned people now, in order to boost up the representation of those states. So, like, it's important that, that this was never about democracy. This is the way the Senate was made to work. This is the way that Congress is made to work. It was made, as you pointed out, guys, is to, like, uphold capitalism. This isn't just, like, a Democratic and Republican project this is an American project, right? Is the American project is to uphold these incredibly oppressive forms of white supremacist capitalism. And we shouldn't be shocked when the system is working as intended. And so I think it's really important that these, these, these aren't bugs, these are features. This is how they want it to work. And so it's not just that the Democrats don't want to get this passed. It's that the entire state doesn't want to change because they like it this way, right? Yeah. Because it keeps them in power. Yeah. Totally. And I guess like the thing is, so I, I wanted to pick up on something Odin said that I thought was really like super relevant here, which is like, it's not even on the one hand, I do agree that like in the sort of like grand scheme, the Democrats aren't really interested in passing much of this legislation, but it's not just like a circus show. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not just for, I mean, yeah. Okay. Maybe in the, maybe in the long run, but like, on one hand, I think on the one hand, I think this is the way that they think that they can guarantee stability for capitalism, not for working people in general, but for capitalism uh, in the like medium to long term. But on the other hand, like what I think the Democrats show themselves unwilling to do time and time again is like actually do what it takes to like 
pass even their very tepid reforms. And I'll come back to that in a second, because I don't want to make the confusion that we're saying, like, <laughs> you know, build back better. <laughs> and for the people were like these groundbreaking legislative triumphs. But all that to say, like, the perfect example of this is abortion rights. Like, this is the thing that the Democrats bring up all the time when talking about the threat of uh, more conservative judges on the Supreme Court, about the threat of the right, which is real. But, you know, uh, they bring up this issue of abortion rights and holding on to Roe v. Wade time and time again as a sort of token, like a bargaining chip to be able to get elected in the next round as the lesser evil. But the thing is, like, there are many measures that Joe Biden, that the Senate, the House could all take to actually give people what they need, which is not just a legal precedent, which is not just, you know, this tenuous sort of you won't get arrested for getting an abortion, yeah. but rather free, safe, legal access to abortion. <laughs> and that is like what could actually do that is the um introduction of a law, a federal law that guarantees that right <laughs> to working people. Um, and the thing is, they won't do that by executive order, by ending the fill, whatever the mechanism is, because overturning those mechanisms, those emergency breaks in U.S. capitalism is what could ultimately not be good for stability under capitalism in the future. You know, so it's not just that the Democrats are like, ah, we're not really trying uh, because they do you know, put forward this legislation for a reason based on sort of the relation of forces and their voter base and all of this and their vision of capitalism, which is still capitalism, but a little different from the Republicans. But because in the long term, what is actually like their their goal is being able to sort of have the best conditions in the long run for capitalists to keep making money and for them to keep churning that out, you know? Um, and so I think that that's really important when we, to be specific in what we mean about these like big structural hurdles, right? Because it's not just that we need better Democrats. It's not just that we need to have like a different sort of democracy or reform the Senate under capitalism, but it really is endemic to the system. <laughs> and so I just wanted to make that that point. And then I guess just very quickly, like this is now becoming like a very long intervention, but I just want to say again that like we're using this as an example to talk about how undemocratic the U.S. state is. But at the same time, like none of this legislation was ever going to be enough. None yeah, of it was yeah. going to correct the huge structural change, like structural changes that make, you know, living conditions for working people worse and worse each year. You know, like there's all yeah. this talk about wages are increasing, like, oh, the labor movement is as strong as it has ever been. And like there are, you know, and we can talk more about that later. And yes, they're encouraging signs of, you know, workers taking power. But in the grand scheme of neoliberalism, like people are still not making enough to, uh, you know, live uh, with inflation even before it went up uh, this year, right? Like people are yeah. still seeing attacks every year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just go to be quickly. Clear, yeah, please. Oh, I just want to say to be clear to like our listeners or to people who are not familiar with left voices work, this is definitely not, you know, an argument to say that like we love Build Back Better and we're mad that <laughs> or that we, you know, we thought that the Joe Biden agenda was really great and that we are, you know, saying we should fight tooth and nail for that. We, you know, none of these things go even remotely far enough. They're absolutely not part of our program. Uh, so I just wanted to clarify that point, Absolutely. definitely, as Maddie Disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to very quickly pick up the really excellent point that Maddie made about how, like, they could pass Roe v. Wade as a law tomorrow and they're not. 
And I want to, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently as we have seen the sort of right wing advance, I would say, in the last months of 2021, the first months of 2022, with a rolling back of, of rights across the board, but specifically targeted transgender children and yeah. like things that are just like really, really, in my opinion, evil. Like uh, there's a new uh, called like the real you bill or something that makes it illegal to change your name or something like really, really fucked up shit. Yeah. And I just and I think that we're increasingly caught in this, like, if you pardon the expression, abusive cycle with the Democrats, where it feels as if every election they're like, if you don't vote for us, every minority will die. And then, like, to those of us who are in marginalized communities, they come to us and they say, are you really going to betray your ancestors and not vote for us? And then we vote for them or some of us vote for them. And then they get in and they don't do jack shit to actually protect anybody. And then. I guarantee you come 2022, which we are now in, um, come November rather, that it's going to be every single thing. It's going to be about these attacks on voting rights, these attacks on trans rights, these attacks on the unreproductive rights. And they're going to be like, well, you have to vote for us to defend that. And so many people voted for Joe Biden specifically to protect Roe v. Wade. And Roe v. Wade is being overturned under a Joe Biden administration. Yeah, And that is, if that is not the perfect example of what Democrats do, I don't know what it is. They weaponize our oppression, they weaponize our trauma to get, a, to get elected and then do not defend us. The only thing that will defend minority rights, the only thing that will defend reproductive rights, the only thing that will defend the marginalized is combative social movements organized independently of the Democratic Party who are willing and militant to go into the streets and into workplaces to organize for our liberation. That is the only way to protect any, any of these rights. And nothing the Democrats say, no Democrat, no member of that godforsaken party will ever defend you. <laughs> They don't love you. They don't care about you. They're not going to be better this time. Yeah, they're, they're not going to love you back. I think <laughs> is something we can safely say. Yeah, I mean, I think that so far we've talked a lot about like what the Democrats are not doing and why. So we've talked about, you know, the undemocratic nature of the system and how it's a structural problem. Uh, it's a feature, not a bug. And also that like, you know, frankly, the Democrats really just don't, uh, they do not have your interests at heart and they do not want to do a lot of these things that people are hoping that they will do, whether it's, you know, protect abortion rights, legalize weed, things like that. So I wanted though to shift a little bit to talking about like what the Democrats have accomplished. And I want to make sure that we're not playing into this narrative that like the, the Democrats are just like, you know, bumbling around in the dark, not achieving anything because they're huge, you know, fools basically. Um, or, you know, they're not just these like hapless victims, just like watching everything crumble around them. So, you know, something off the top of my head that the Democrats have accomplished is that um, at the end of last year, they, of course, passed the largest military budget uh, since World War II. <laughs> For example, they, of course, with uh, AOC and Jamal Bauman's support, among others, they were able to pass uh, military budgets to support uh, uh, Israel and to support uh, apartheid. Um, of course, much to uh, leftists' uh, chagrin, or to rather progressive chagrin, they are able to always unite to block, for example, the Bernie Sanders campaign, block the campaigns of people like India Walton and uh, Nina Turner. And so, you know, in a lot of senses, actually, um, the Democrats have been successful. And Maddie, I know that you actually wrote an article, I just remembered, about how um, the Biden administration has managed to expand the 
remain in Mexico policy and to actually continue a lot of the Trump era immigration policies that are super inhumane um, and that really amount to just continuing this policy of kids in cages and things like that. So I guess I wanted to turn to asking you both a little bit more about um, the things that Biden has accomplished while in office. So as for example, you wrote a piece about how uh, one of Biden's tasks when taking office was to restore legitimacy to U.S. institutions. Mm -hmm. And Maddie, in a really similar vein, you wrote about how Biden's task was to uh, shore up U.S. hegemony, hegemony to restore uh, U.S. imperialism and hegemony to its former glory, which it had taken a battering toward um, under the Biden administration. You know, Biden famously said, uh, America is back. So I wanted to ask you guys about like, what exactly has Biden achieved on these goals? What has in particular U.S. imperialism and U.S. institutions looked like under the Biden administration? Totally. I'll go really quick because I think the international discussion of this is, I think, where we can see this um, most clearly. But um, on the question of institutions, I think it's helpful to think about where we were at the end of 2020, right? We see many, many people not trusting the Supreme Court after uh, the forcing through of Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, right? Um, we see huge questioning of the police. We see huge questioning of these institutions. We see, to a certain extent, and obviously from a right-wing context, but we see Donald Trump actively arguing that these institutions are corrupt, right? Yeah. And telling people to not trust the election system, right? And so we, and so we, 2021 opened with this very, like, the institutions are in shambles and nobody trusts them from either the left or the right. And then I, I recently wrote about the end of January 6th, and I think that that is almost like the marker, right? Is that going into January 6th, we were all like, fuck the police. And then suddenly who came out as the hero of January 6th? We had a hero cop who, you know, faced down these like right-wing maniacs, right? And like, that is the Biden administration in a nutshell to me, is that we, we see that this sort of like, smoothing over of the public reputation of these institutions that people have begun to question under Donald Trump, in part because he was so sort of uh, loose-lipped about the about what, what's really going on, and in part because people were finally starting to see the contradictions in, inherent in the U U.S. electoral system, right, and the institutions of the state. And then following that, under Biden, it's just been a trust, trust the process, trust the process, trust the process, trust the process. Yeah. It took, it took, I think, almost a year for Biden to argue against the filibuster, right? It took like all this time, and we still are seeing trust the process, trust the process, trust the process, trust the process. And it has been an absolute re-legitimization and a putting back of trust into these places that were beginning to be a little shaky following Trump. And I think that is like even more so true abroad. So I will pass the mic to Maddie. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wanted to, I'll, I'll move on to international for sure. Um, and if our answers are too long, I guess this will be left on the cutting room floor, uh, cutting room floor, no, but just a little, just a little extra for you. Uh, no, but something I think that Ezra was definitely pointing to is that, and that I, I don't want to get sort of lost in the shuffle is in like the in the re in the realm of restoring legitimacy to U.S. institutions is that like under Trump, like even the NGOs, even like 
the tactic was to go to the streets because people were scared that like Trump would just overturn all of, <laughs> would just like seize despotic control. And, and as Ezra said previously, and we talked about before is like, that was very much used as a weapon to get people to vote for Democrats for sure. But I think there really was in some sense, like, you know, indications that Trump, um, especially after the election was trying to use institutional means to like, change things in his favor. And so people were much more willing to go out in the streets because of that fear. But under Biden, what we see is like, I think a lot of outsourcing of all of that anger and momentum from below to the leaderships of NGOs, of organizations that will fight the the legal battle, that will fight this at the level of lobbying like now uh, the discussion is that all of this should be worked out amongst ourselves as friends like now it's just more pressure you know and and symbolic actions and and all of this um but at the same time i think we've very much been talking about continuity uh between trump and biden but at the same time we're not uh, where we were at 2016 we're not even where we were from uh, the beginning of 2020 and it is true that i think that Biden's honeymoon period is over, (laughs) you know, like it's not resulted in massive class struggle, but I think people are much less willing to um, hang on to their illusions in in Biden and sort of the more establishment Democrats, you know? Um, And so I think that this is a very, and they can't. (laughs) And I guess that's the other point is that like people's material circumstances are just too dire to be able to also rely on, (laughs) on that hope that it will, it'll, it'll happen just because we, we have faith in, 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 or the organization in organizations and institutions, whatever. So I do want to say that I think after 2020, like there is signs of, you know, there are signs that we can do it differently. And I think that that's kind of where like as leftists, we can't just hang our heads and be like, ah, more of the same, like (laughs) we'll never, (laughs) you know, make a difference or things will always be like this. Like, no, like we're not starting from zero. We never are. That's not how things work. And and this isn't just always going to be the same. So I did want to mention that, but I think, you know, this is equally true. This role that Biden has been playing, uh, in the international realm. And, you know, I think there's a lot, a lot, like a whole podcast <laughs> episode worth of, you know, material to talk about on this. But in terms of restoring U.S. hegemony, which, yeah, I agree with Odin took a, a turn under Trump, but this is a process that is much longer, decades mm-hmm. longer under even Bush, right? Like yeah. a decades long decline. Hmm? Yeah, even before that. Right, 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 right. So, um, like nothing that Biden has been able to do in the international realm has been able to change that. And what we see, in fact, is Biden, as we said at the top of the episode, is, you know, maintaining, for instance, Trump's hard line against China, because that's still the most existential threat to U.S. uh, hegemony internationally. And I was just reading about I was you know, looking at the New York Times the other day, and I saw this article, like, there are so many articles about China's supply chain issues Mm. and China's like COVID response, and really hammering home the idea that this is going to stop production. And I kind of kicked it kind of made me realize that like, you know, it's not like Biden's push to keep things open, Biden's push to keep schools open, to get things back up and running is not just because, you know, to make more money, 
domestically by domestic U.S. companies, but to be able to keep up with China, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, um, in many ways, taking a different approach to COVID and not for anything, but like, you know, no, no love for the Chinese Communist Party, but is taking measures to actually, you know, uh, not just leave millions, billions, millions of people to just get COVID and get over it, and maybe they'll die, <laughs> you know, like, it's taking a different approach. But the US approach is very much centered on trying to build up, uh, you know, its reserves to compete with China. And, and Biden is really continuing Trump's policy in that way. And in fact, going further. Um, and the same is true. Um in, in relation to Mexico and immigration, as as Odin brought up earlier, which is, you know, for Biden, uh, you know, I think he really doesn't also want to alienate completely that sector of, you know, he's not appealing to Trump's social base. I think that's firmly in the far right camp, but sees the very necessary um you know, benefits to U.S. companies of keeping a very precarious and very, uh, you know, um, subject to attack group of people who can who can do cheap labor, keep working, who aren't, uh, you know, subject to the same even baseline protections as U.S. workers and to keep Mexico under its thumb, to keep AMLO and the Mexican government firmly dependent on the U.S. economy and firmly dependent on U.S. Uh, immigration policy. Like, that is what's crazy, right? Is that the decision to uh, uphold and expand remain in Mexico was literally the US Supreme Court and Biden deciding foreign policy for Mexico. Wild. <laughs> Domestic and, interna and, and international policy. And that just shows that, of course, like US hegemony internationally is on the decline, but still it is like <laughs> the, the global sort of imperialist power, right? Yeah, the US uh, even, calls the shots. Right, right, exactly. Um, but beyond that, the last thing I'll say about, you know, in very brief and insufficient comments about, you know, the international situation is that what I do think is that, you know, um, one thing that people were certain about with Biden is that he would rebuild the ally, the alliances um, that the US was able to count on for many decades, even in the midst of its decline, specifically in Europe, uh, Latin America, whatever, right? And I think we see some indications of working together a little bit, but those relationships, because exactly because of the US's weakened position after 2008, after, you know, um, and in this sort of like longer period of decline is that it's it's not the same. Those alliances aren't, the US still very much calls the shots, but not with quite the same power <laughs> as it once did. And we see that in a whole host of, of arenas. So, you know, I think in that sense, like the era of inter-imperialist and sort of proxy wars and all of that is still very much in flux and actually something that will only increase as we're seeing with what's going on with the Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, like all of that. Um, those are all offshoots of a period that is still very much dictated by <laughs> crisis at the international level. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I j just to add one small detail about uh, the international situation, which is not my, my beat for left voice at all. But I really do think it's incredibly important that when we assess the Biden presidency and we assess not just the Biden presidency, but the Democratic administration, given that they control Congress as well, that we think about these international questions. And I think there is this really 
to me, concerning tendency in the United States of leftists to only think about the domestic sphere. And I think that what that uh, results in is just this absolute acceptance and collaboration with U.S. imperialism, right? And that it is not a small detail that Jamal Bowman, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, voted to fund the Iron Dome in Israel. Like, that's not a detail, right? It's not a detail that Biden's presidency has kept the U.S. embassy in uh, Jerusalem. That's not a detail, right? It's not a detail that, like, these bombing campaigns are unleashed on the third world, right? Like, these are not details, right? And I think it's really, really important that we not just think about Biden from a domestic point of view, but from an international point of view and remember and realize that, like, the Biden administration is an administration of blood. And it's an administration of the blood of the imperialized world. And that is something that I think we as leftists can never forget and never accept as just a natural part of the way we do business, you know? Yeah. And I absolutely. think that that's becoming more common sense. Like it's, you know, I see now people so angry about the fact that our defense budget is what, like 75 point whatever <laughs> billion dollars increasing over the last year. And yet, like there's not enough like people like teachers are still begging for PPE from parents, you know, like yeah. there's still yeah. no money and build back better, which was going to what was was going to be the thing that, you know, skyrocketed inflation. OK, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I don't see like Biden in any way and never was going to be by yeah. any stretch of the imagination, anything different. But I think that that's definitely been something that people are sort of rallying around and seeing the hypocrisy and just complete irrationality of that fact alone, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and the fact just about the Pentagon budget, the fact that the Dem- that an entirely Democratic Congress voted to give them more money than they asked for is yeah. so indicative of where this government's priorities are, right? And these government's priorities are the exact same as every other government's priorities, which is ensuring imperialism continues, right? That is the number one priority of basically every U.S. government. And I think that we can't ever fall for the lie again that the Democrats are somehow different or better. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely. Yeah, I wanted to ask next um, what you guys think that this next year will look up look like partly you know leading up to the uh the midterms but also what you think lies ahead just in terms of like the next like three years of the biden administration i thought maddie it was really interesting how you said that like even in the uh tasks that biden has in terms of like restoring uh imperialism or you know the former uh imperialist glory and then restoring hegemony um i think it's a really interesting point that like actually these are longer term projects that actually even on this arena um there are like serious headwinds to the to the biden administration so yeah what do you guys think that the future will look like um both in terms of the things that the biden administration will accomplish and won't be able to accomplish is this where i bust out my pet executive order theory I Go for it. it. We, we love I, conspiracy theories. It's not here. a conspiracy. Okay. So the, <laughs> that's not true. Um, not true. Sorry. Only fun one. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the Kurt Cobain was was murdered. Podcast is a different podcast. No, but uh, <laughs> uh, leave it in. No cuts. But um, but no, I think that like clearly what we're seeing is the next year is going to be a really really tough political road for Biden. Right. Basically, every bourgeois paper is arguing that the last two weeks have been the worst 
period of his presidency. And it seems like it's only going to get tougher as we head into the, the midterm season. And, and the think- Democrats recognize this. I mean, there are also those articles that say that like Democrats are looking for a reset, especially yep. a lot of these Democrats, uh, like House representatives who are in seats that they're pretty sure they will all but lose to Republicans in a few months. Absolutely, right. The so-called frontline Democrats, right? Um, which is an insult to every frontline worker everywhere, but that's a different discussion. Um, but I think that what, what's interesting here is that we have to remember is that Biden has political capital that he hasn't used yet, which is specifically in the imperial in the in the imperial presidency, right? Is that especially since the Bush era, the presidency has only been getting stronger. In fact, I would argue since Reagan, right? Is that this idea of the presidency is having more and more power concentrated in it, specifically through executive orders and things like that, which means that Biden has the ability to force things through if he wants them to. And he so far has shown a pretty um, significant um, reluctance to do so. But apparently some of these frontline Democrats in the House are putting together a list of executive orders Biden could pass to show that the Democrats are doing something. So I don't think it's impossible. So I think that there is one eventuality in which the rest of the year is just once again, partisan gridlock. They can't get Joe Manchin to agree to anything and they shake their fists at the sky every day and then they get wiped out in the midterms, which I think is one very possible scenario. I think it's repeat. Yeah, truly. But I think another possibility is that there comes a point where Biden shifts his strategy away from trying to get things passed through Congress and towards trying to, to implement, again, incredibly minor insufficient reforms. Not, there's nothing that Joe Biden is going to do that is going to fix the problems of America. There is nothing that Joe Biden is going to do that's going to fix the core problems. But he could do things like forgive student debt. There are memos that show that he has the power to forgive student debt or all of it or some of it or none of it through executive order. That's something that he can do with one pen stroke. And there are lots of things that Biden can do with just a pen stroke. And so I really think that we should prepare ourselves for, and again, this is purely going to be from a saving your own ass perspective, but as a way to show specifically uh, House Democrats that they are that they will have something to run on in November. That there yeah. start being an exec- some minor reforms through executive order, or again, Ross Washburn's repeat: <laughs> "We hate we hate the Republicans, but we can't get anything passed." And then yeah. they get wiped out in November. I think that is, I think those are kind of the two eventualities I see. Obviously, pending crises and disasters. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I think that the specter of getting wiped out in the midterms really will be a big motivating factor. I think, you know, I said earlier that I am of the strong belief that the Democrats, like, honestly, do not really care about a lot of these progressive promises. But I do want to say there is the caveat that, like, to the extent that Democrats do care about a political issue, it's so that they can win at the ballot box in the midterms and general elections. And so... I do, you know, buy this theory that like maybe he'll start doing things by executive order, not because I think that he is like actually concerned about the working class, because frankly, no uh, bourgeois politician, no politician in the US is concerned about the working class. But, you know, workers and voters are going to expect some crumbs in exchange for their votes. And so I think that like there is this fear from the part of Democrats that like, their perceived inaction will cost them elections. And so they will want to, you know, throw some scraps Mm -hmm. to those of us at the bottom, you know, whether through forgiving some student debt or through like uh, some stimulus payments, whatever, to try to get our support so that they don't get totally wiped out. 
Yeah, just super quickly on that is that I think it's important. There was this um, focus group poll that came out of uh, Virginia after the Virginia election in 2021, where this pollster like sat there, you know, did all the things that pollsters do that Odin, you can talk about what that means and I can't, but, um, and discovered that basically everybody polled who could not name a single thing that Joe Biden had done. Yeah, And even people who were getting the child tax credit, which has now expired, even people who were getting the child, or is about to expire, I'm not sure the exact date that it expires, but um, even the child tax credit, people who were getting it didn't know they were getting it. And so and so, this has created this interesting sort of crisis in the Democratic Party that exactly as you said, Odin, right, where they need to look like they got something done. And there yeah. was a great article, and I think it was either the Times or the Post or the Washington Post this weekend. Um, about this exact thing where apparently these frontline Democrats are literally shouting at Nancy Pelosi in her office being like, yeah. we need something to run on. We yeah. have to get something done because we need something to run on or we're going to get fucked. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's very possible that they get, they, they get something done and get fucked anyway because I think people yeah. have seen through their bullshit. But yeah. like, I think that we will see a huge push to get something done in the yeah. next six months or so just so that they can be like, even if it's just like, see, we gave you $10,000 of student debt relief. Vote yeah. for the Democrat. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but they, they currently have nothing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, so <laughs> I think that all that is like definitely definitely true and the democrats are super it's like very likely right that the democrats are going to perform pretty badly yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the midterms like let's just i think i mean i don't know you know what i say that and then who knows what'll happen but yeah. like you know i think that that's at least where the the winds are pointing but i wanted to sort of step back for a second since odin gave us the opportunity to talk about the next two to three years on the future whatever right because as marxists like we're not just looking at the snapshot of today, but like looking at how capitalism moves over yeah. a, like a much longer period of time and over the course of like very, you know, not slow moving, but processes that take decades, right? <laughs> and um, something that I wanted to emphasize is that, you know, the pandemic exacerbated a crisis that was brewing in capitalism for a really long time. Uh, and that you know, like has its roots in the period after World War II, right? And we're not going to go back there. <laughs> I, I am not, uh, you know, um, it's for a erudite enough. <laughs> right. And I am not, def I'm definitely not prepared to give that speech. But what I did want to say is that capitalism, even, you know, post 2008, it reached a, a sort of fever pitch in in sort of a, a quest to find new avenues for capital and new ways for capital to both like, regenerate and accumulate right um and there's a crisis there and it still hasn't been uh resolved and won't be <laughs> for a long time and biden you know in the first year it's too much to ask but <laughs> for sure but has not seen the structural has not made the structural changes that have are anywhere near able to do that right and so this means to me that like even if Biden is able to guarantee some stability in the short term. And it, I don't even know if that's likely, but the, the point is, is that capitalism is still looking for ways to sort of, you know, temper that, uh, that crisis. And so in that sense, like, and I, and I only bring that up to say that there's a lot that is being like the set, the stage is being set now for crises to like break out <laughs> later, especially in the U S where we see like the pandemic, if nothing else, like saw just how deep the cuts 
of neoliberal neoliberalism were in the living conditions of millions of people living in the US, right? Like, and none of that was resolved in education, in healthcare, like, it didn't buckle necessarily, although, you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's disputed by the people, the teachers and healthcare workers who are, you know, completely traumatized from the last year and burned out, but like, it definitely not the same situation in, in other countries, right? Um, like, I, I, I guess all that to say that is like, you know, that stuff is coming down the road. Like those crises are set to break later down the road unless some big, some big shifts happen. Um, and, you know, and I can't, I'm not trying to predict anything there other than, you know, the, the promise of more political instability. But I bring that up to say that is like, what's decisive in the next two to three years of the Biden administration then is class struggle, right? Is yeah. like, the intervention of people who are, whose living conditions are still under attack <laughs> and who after a year of a presidency that was supposed to be different from Trump aren't seeing returns on that, are still dealing with the same shit, are still dealing with, you know, education uh, classrooms full of 40 kids without heat in the winter. <laughs> like that's yeah. nothing. None yeah. of that has changed. And you can't just blame that on the Republicans, right? Like even Build Back Better wasn't going to finish, wasn't going to fix that. And so like all that we can say is that I think, you know, what really what happens in the next two to three years is dependent on how people organized to like fight back <laughs> you know what i mean like what processes will come up not just in the u.s but internationally like the international situation we already see is marked by um the sort of intervention of the masses against yeah. their <laughs> uh, capitalist neoliberal governments right and so i think that that's the thing that is going to actually set the tone for what happens at the national level and like what we will see is that like because that crisis of capitalism hasn't been resolved what also hasn't been resolved is the crisis between the represented and the representatives right and so yeah. like that will definitely come to fruition in the midterms and we know what's happening on the right we know the monstrous figures that are appearing there so who knows what that will produce on the leftward side if anything because the progressives are doing nothing <laughs> yeah. except voting for fucking iron i'm sorry now all the curses are coming out <laughs> <laughs> We, in the last, uh, you know, five minutes here, but you know, <laughs> uh, voting for funding for um, Israel. So all that to say, I think like the political situation is super open. Um, and what we do need to keep our eye on is, you know, the interventions of working people, whether it's, you know, around voting rights, which we're not seeing really much indication of or around you know, all these things that haven't been resolved yet. So, uh, yeah, which I think. <laughs> Sorry, go on, Ezra. No, I was just saying, just going off what Maddie was saying briefly, I think we should feel optimistic about in the next year to three years, right? Is that I think that the ending of the Biden honeymoon is also the ending of a lot of illusions in Biden. Not all yeah. of the illusions in Biden. I don't, I'm not, don't want people to be like, oh, Ezra's saying that everybody hates Biden. Now, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that I think that as we see fewer and fewer illusions in the Biden administration, fewer and fewer... Um, yeah, like delusions of grandeur in what this government can achieve. I think we are going to see a resurgence in the class struggle that we saw at the end of 2020 that never really was resolved. The Black yeah. Lives Matter movement never was resolved. Yeah. And so I think that it is important that also like a lot of the things that they said they were going to give the Black Lives Matter movement, they just haven't. And, you know, and we're seeing and they're hoping that people just forget and that people are just like so demobilized and so demoralized. But I think that all it's going to take is is a push in one in one area and we're going to see explosive class struggle again. And I think that we should 
be really hopeful uh, and optimistic about that. And I think it's important to be hopeful and optimistic in a moment that is not always, that doesn't always feel very hopeful or optimistic. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think that it's really easy to feel very, very despairing. And I think that like a lot of people kind of anecdotally, I'm seeing a lot of people be like, wow, this is like, you know, fuck the Democrats. I think a lot of people are really coming to that conclusion. And I think especially like as uh, a lot of these promises get broken, I think that more and more people are going to be like, well, you know, what the fuck is the point? And I think um, I want to really try to end on a more a more positive note, a more optimistic note about like, you know, things we can do going forward. And I think uh, clearly the conclusion we're reaching here is not that like we just need to like vote harder and like we didn't <laughs> vote blue hard enough. We need to like vote blue no matter really, who you know, run to the polls, like, you know, really go in there with gusto. You know, I think that that's really, <laughs> really not ever what our conclusion is going to be. So I wanted to end on. Uh, a question of like, you know, what is the task for socialists going forward? What should we do uh, if not go to the voting booths uh, harder in 2022? Take it away, Ezra. I like this rhythm of you talking (laughs) and then me, because I think much slower than them. So (laughs) No, I think, um, I don't know, I, I worry that any answer to this question will sound pat, right? Because I think as Maddie so beautifully pointed out that we can't kind of can't know, right, is that we have to engage with history as it's happening, right? And I think that we need to accept that that is a task and that is a responsibility. And I think for socialists in the U.S., our task is to accept our historical uh, role, which is to help organize and prepare for the coming breaks, Right. We're saying that there are that these contradictions have not been resolved. We're saying that these problems are structural and haven't been addressed. We're saying that it's only a matter of time until things start breaking. And I think our role as socialists is to do everything in our power to be ready for those moments. And I think that means one, I think we need to get fucking organized. I think we need to organize ourselves. I think we need to organize ourselves completely independently of the Democratic Party. I think we need to organize our workplaces. I think we need to organize our communities. I think we need to organize. I think we need to organize. I think we need to organize. We say it one more time. I think we need to organize. And I also think that we have to think internationally. I think that we have to uh, build relationships with groups in other countries. And I think one of the, not to, turn this into a self-promotion moment. But one of the things I value most about being a member of Left Voice is that we are part of an international tendency. And so we are constantly getting updates and in communication and receiving criticism, getting feedback and all advice from all of these other countries and all of these other fights. And I think it's important that while each of these struggles does have a, a national character, obviously, and obviously the U.S.'s national character is specific, right, in some fascinating and frustrating ways, but that we are all fighting the same fight, same struggle, same fight. You know what I mean? And like, I think that we have to really in 2022 and going forward, seek to unite a lot of these struggles. The struggle for trans rights is the struggle for union rights. The struggle for union rights is the struggle against anti-imperialism because they are all struggles against the capitalist system, which is what is oppressing all of us. And so we have to, as leftists, I think, seek to always unite these these struggles and always unite these conversations so that then we can show that it's not it's not society man it's capitalism you know what i mean like uh, i have a friend who always says you don't hate mondays you hate capitalism right and like i think that's so true right is that like all of these things every 
everything that is oppressing us by and large is a, almost a direct result of imperialist capitalism. And so then the, we have to, I think, to use the words of Lenin, explain and patiently explain again to whoever will listen what the real struggle is and what the real fight is and help be in the moments when things erupt and be in the moments where people fight. Um, I think that's the most important thing to do is to fight and to be where the fight is. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, like this is very much a preparatory moment that will prove very decisive for the left in the next period. Uh, when class struggle will erupt <laughs> inevitably as it as it does, maybe not even here, or probably not here, uh, but or here. I don't know. I don't know what I'm Yes, here. <laughs> All right. I, I settled on that one here, too, <laughs> but in other places as well. But um, no. And what I mean by that is not, you know, preparatory as in preparing for the next election cycle, not the midterms or, you know, the <laughs> God forbid 2024, as we're already fucking seeing. Jesus Christ. Um, uh, but rather trying to form a left that can actually make a difference independently from bourgeois capitalist parties who don't have parties, but not even just parties, leaderships who don't have our backs. You know, like there were super encouraging signs. Um, in the beginning of the pandemic, but even more recently during Striketober and the beginning part of Strike November <laughs> uh, of labor saying we're not going to take it anymore. And what was amazing about those struggles is two things. One, that they weren't just protesting, uh, you know, uh, to demand, they weren't just striking to demand PPE or which are all important things, but also to address cuts that happened years before that. You know, like the striking coal miners at Warrior Met in Alabama are um, st are striking against a deal that saw wage cuts after uh, the company went bankrupt in 2016 as a result of 2008. You know what I mean? Like, that's what's super encouraging and fighting the two tier wage system that, uh, you know, was an, it was a, a very skillfully crafted tool of neoliberalism to divide workers and to make gradual and continued cuts on their living conditions and they were fighting against that and fighting against that sort of even cross sectors in some sense right to and but on and the second thing that's really amazing about those fights is that they and is a huge marker for the labor movement is like in some ways those those fights even though most of them i think are over now and uh, uh, accepted agreements um they pushed back against their leaderships that were yeah. like, take a raw deal, take a bad deal. <laughs> you know, raw deal. I don't think I've ever said that before, but here we go. I don't know. If Very Midwestern. I loved it. I was felt Thank right you. home. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Um, you know, they pushed back against the, the bureaucrats, the union leaders who really just want in many ways to uh, mitigate or, or to resolve the conflict between the bosses and the workers in a way that, you know, makes things stable, but, in a capitalist society, that means stable in favor of the bosses, right? Yeah. Um, and those strikes in many ways, um, and even in like some of the resistance of teachers this year has shown a willingness to fight that. We need more of that. And I'm not trying to paint too rosy a picture, of course, because I think we can't underestimate how big of an obstacle the union bureaucracy and its counterpart in the social movements and the NGOs are to, um, you know, 
organizing massive action, massive collective action in the labor movement and the social, whatever, we can't underestimate that, but those are encouraging signs, right? And this is what I mean, though, by a preparatory moment, because the left right now needs to prepare for the future fights and prepare to intervene in a way that helps these movements that will happen whether we're ready or not, uh, to make sure that they can win, to make sure that they're able to um, confront those leaderships, those misleaderships, right? To, to provide that counterpoint and show an alternative that points towards independent organization of the working class and oppressed and all of the people who have been suffering these attacks under capitalism for many years, but more critically in the last like 30 decades, you know, 30 decades. Yeah. <laughs> three decades, three decades, 30 years. <laughs> um, so all that to say, like, I think right now, the left needs to be thinking of those tasks. How can we build up a very clear profile that isn't just profile and organizing strategies that aren't tied to our oppressors, right? How can we form clear ideas that actually work for the working class, that actually do go far enough, and then taking that to its logical conclusion, point to an entirely different type of society that we don't want to compromise on, you know? Um, And that involves organizing workplaces. It involves doing propaganda. It involves getting organized. And for that, you need a strong organization, a strong, uh, you know, group of dedicated (laughs) revolutionary socialists who are willing to see those fights and their connections as all targeted towards building, overthrowing this fucked up system and implementing something better. And that's key, you know, is we need to get rid of this idea that we're going to do it with the Democrats. And we need to focus on building a different type of organization that doesn't wait for elections, but fights on the ground, (laughs) you know, Uh, and intervenes in these fights and supports them. And and tries to win people over to to our ideas and is able to agree on those ideas and fight them out and clash and all of those things. So I think that this question of party that's resurged a a lot in the left and on the left as it sort of periodically does is a really important one. And we have to have a conversation with each other because we don't have the same ideas and we need to fight it out, (laughs) you know? So um, uh, also while realizing, as Ezra said, that we do when it comes to a struggle stand shoulder to shoulder <laughs> on the things we do agree on. And I think those fights will be de- decisive, whether they're in the labor movement, whether they're around voting rights, which, you know, like we've shot, we've, you know, done a lot of uh, shit talking of Biden's policies, but even the struggle to protect voting rights is super important. Mm-hmm. We need to fight for every demo- every ounce of democracy that we can under this undemocratic system, but to, you know, coalesce around those struggles and try to put forward an independent socialist perspective. Um, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> well, Ezra, Maddie, thank you guys so much for being here today. Thank you. So we are part of Left Voice. Uh, stay tuned for more hot podcast content. But you can also, of course, uh, visit our website, as you should, at leftvoice.org. And of course, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash leftvoice. We're really excited about this project, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. Until next time, solidarity.